Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the host, producer, and editor of our little operation here. For longtime listeners, you may be wondering why we are posting a mid-month episode. Well, you are in luck. We've decided to increase our posting frequency to continue to bring you the most up-to-date information on international issues. We will continue to post our traditional interview-style episodes at the start of each month, and then we'll follow up with an engaged discussion between myself and Dr. Melinda Negron-Gonzalez, an associate professor in the Department of Security Studies at UNH Manchester. The goal of these mid-month episodes will be to talk about a number of issues in an engaging and down-to-earth way, as if two friends were talking about what most interests them from around the world. We hope you enjoyed these discussions, and please remember to leave a comment and rate our podcast. Why don't we hop right in? And the first story that I want to talk about is the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the Russian dissident who back on August 20th, was taking a plane back from Siberia from some election stuff that he was doing and went to the bathroom, started sweating and collapsed and became unconscious. And it's just a really amazing story. This isn't the first time we've heard about Russia poisoning people, but this is seemingly the first time that Russia has actually tried to put up a strong defense back in 2018 when they poisoned the ex-spy and his daughter, and unfortunately a British citizen was killed in that attack. They sort of were like, yeah, it it wasn't us, don't worry about it. But this one, they seem to be a little bit more forceful, uh, I think because of the discussion of sanctions that's going on. But I don't know, Melinda, what are you you thinking about Russia and and their potential use of nerve agents to to kill citizens? Guilty as charged. (laughs) (laughs) They They will continue, I think, to deny that, you know, their people were behind this, but the German Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel has backed German scientists who say that they did indeed find traces of this Novichek, I'm probably saying that wrong, nerve agent. And so, you know, I don't know. It's all very interesting. And I think in the U.S. when we hear allegations of a Russian dissident being poisoned by, you know, nefarious actors perhaps tied to Putin, we all nod our heads and think, well, yes, that makes perfect sense, right? I mean, because Putin is this caricature. He's this, you know, ultimate bad actor in the world. And of course he poisons political dissidents. And so I think in the West anyway, the way this story is unfolding, it really ties into our broader worldview of of how the Russians operate. And what makes it interesting internationally is how Angela Merkel has decided to respond. And initially, you know, she was backing the scientist, but didn't really make any forceful claims, right? And then she changed her tune a little bit. And now there's talk of sanctions and even perhaps pulling out of the Nord Stream 2 project. I don't know if you heard about that, Tim. And so the Nord Stream 2 project, for people who are unfamiliar with that, is a uh, pipeline 
that goes under the Baltic Sea to transport Russian gas to European markets and billions of dollars have gone into this. There's a Nord Stream 1 that was completed already and so that Angela Merkel and, and people in her administration brought that up was interesting. They're, they've upped the ante and I don't know what that is going to lead to, but it seems strange to me that they would pull out of a project that is almost complete and for which they dedicated many, many euros. What do you think? Well, first off, my favorite thing that I've found out through all of this is that Angela Merkel is actually a chemist by training. And so I guess if I'm going to believe someone as to, you know, whether or not this was actually a a nerve agent attack and specifically the the Norichuk agent, which is a Russian born and bred nerve agent, I'm going to believe the chemist and her people. And particularly when you look at who has the most to lose over this, what is Germany gained by lying about this versus what is Russia gained by lying about this. And indeed, I, I think Russia would be more believable had they initially said, oh, yeah, it looks like it was a poisoning, but it certainly wasn't us. And here's our scapegoat rather than saying, oh, nope, he wasn't poisoned. Our doctors looked at him. And then, you know, we're not going to do an investigation about this because there's, there's nothing to see here. But it was, it was also surprising to, to see that they allowed Germany to come and fly him to Germany to be treated and right. basically saved his life. Just yesterday, he came out of his coma, his medically induced coma, and seems to be on the way back. But I also read that 13 years or something like that, that he's been a thorn in Putin's side. And he's always been asked, well, aren't you worried about being assassinated and his response has always been well it's it's worth it and i'm more of a problem for putin dead than i am alive and it seems ah. that is also been sort of the case because he's been thrown in jail and his organization continues to run and he continues to to be able to really inspire some people to continue to fight against the current regime in in russia so it would be surprising that they they let him go to to be saved by the Germans, but at the same time, perhaps they were just hoping that he would be like, you know what, this has gone too far, I need to to back off. Perhaps. (laughs) Although it sounds like he's a pretty resilient guy. Right. And he's in it for, for the long haul. He's in it until the end. And then I think it's also really interesting, I was reading an article about how they figured out that this was the Norichuk nerve agent and talking about how it's the same stuff that was used in the UK in 2018 and was something that was added to the chemical weapons ban. And so now with Russia saying, oh, we want to do this investigation. Germany, you're making this up. Give us all of your information and we'll look at it ourselves. Germany's been like, nope, we're sending it to the chemical weapons treaty people and they're going to investigate it. So It'll be interesting to see what comes of that and how people react to that news. It does seem like this is a much bigger issue than any of the previous assassination attempts on Russian citizens. But Well, um, the good news is that, you know, Navalny seems to be doing better and, and he's out of his medically induced coma and will live to fight another day against Putin and his nefarious forces. Yeah. Take that. (laughs) All right. And you wanted to talk about? Have you been following the story about the Taliban 
and ongoing talks and continued violence in Afghanistan and what in the world is going on and is the U.S. ever going to leave? <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, it's almost like we outlined some topics beforehand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> certainly the Afghan-Taliban peace process or the U.S. in there as well, I guess. The big thing that I've been sort of following along with recently has been the release of the prisoners. There are 5,000 Taliban fighters that were scheduled to be released. Most of them have been with about a thousand Afghan forces to be released and they're down to the final handful and surprise, surprise, they're kind of the worst of the worst and the West is not too happy about their release. No, no, they are not. <laughs> My understanding is that for people, prisoners who allegedly targeted NATO forces in Afghanistan. They are going to deal with them separately, and some of them will be part of the discussions in Qatar starting soon. And so what's interesting in this process is, yes, it's going at a snail's pace. That's not that unusual. But, you know, they've taken these confidence-building measures, the prisoner swaps, and the Taliban is pretty assertive and is continuing to use violence in certain parts of the country and continues to dig in its heels with respect to certain things. And it continues to be really vague about what it envisions for a post-U.S. Afghanistan once the U.S. fully withdraws. And so it seems to me like the initial talks between the U.S. and the Taliban that have led up to the intra-Afghan negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban were the easy <laughs> steps in this long process. Now comes the hard part. You know, the U.S. convinced the Taliban to engage in talks and do these prisoner swaps and agree to talks with the Afghan government. But now the Afghan government and the Taliban need to figure out what happens and what is Afghanistan going to become? Is it going to become more of an Islamic regime or is it going to continue to be a sort of secular democratic state? I'm going to use air quotes for that. Okay. So in the meantime, as we know, President Trump wants out. The American people want out. And Trump has said that the U.S. is going to reduce the number of American forces in Afghanistan to about 5,000 in November, which will be the lowest number of American forces in Afghanistan since 2001. And so he means business. He really wants this withdrawal to happen sooner than later. And given all the hiccups in the process thus far and how long it took for the prisoner swaps to actually happen, I don't see an actual peace deal between the Afghan government and the Taliban anytime soon. I don't know that that means that the U.S. needs to stick around in, in any meaningful way in terms of boots on the ground in Afghanistan until they hash out, you know, a concrete deal. But it's difficult for the U.S. to continue playing a major role without boots on the ground. <laughs> so... 
I don't know what happens next. It looks good that the Afghan government and the Taliban are at least willing to talk. And that's, you know, an ongoing process. But this is not moving quickly enough for anybody on this side of the Atlantic. And so... I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think it's been a really interesting process to, to follow, right? So you had back in February, the announcement of the deal, and then the announcement that, oh, by the way, nobody talked to the Afghan government about this. Oops, uh, what? You left what? out one of the major actors? Right. Why would they need to be involved in this conversation? Who? Afghan well? government who? What? Yeah. So that's probably not a great start to this whole process. And then you have uh, the Taliban continuing to do attacks, both against U.S. forces and against Afghan forces and ending up killing a U.S. soldier and President Trump saying this is completely dead. We're, we're not talking to the Taliban anymore. And then a week later, we're talking to the Taliban again. Right. Now, take your side on whether or not that's great negotiating tactics. I, you know, wherever you want to land on that, that's up to you. But to me, it kind of comes off as a parent who says, oh, don't do that. If you do that, you're going to go in the corner and you're going to have to have a timeout. And then the kid inevitably wants to test the limits and does it and nothing happens. What are they going to think? They're going to think, oh, I can get away with this. So, you know, absolutely. you, you see this in, in a lot of internal conflicts around the world where, you know, you see negotiations used as a tactic to delay for time to stall really the taliban want to get the u.s out because the u.s is providing security for for this government and my concern is that once the u.s is out the taliban try even more forcefully take over and president trump has said well if that happens we'll come back with even more forces than anyone's ever seen before but you've seeded all of that ground and you're starting back at square one. Now it's great that we are trying to make peace happen. And obviously you need to have discussions, you need to have conversations to make that happen. But I just hope that everyone is dealing in good faith in this and everyone is really wanting to make a lasting peace in this country because it's been 40 plus years that this country has been at war and it's unfortunate for them. It's unfortunate for all of the people who have been involved, everyone who's lost their lives. And you just hope that at some point a resolution can be found, but I'm not overly optimistic about it. This is a, a really sour, dour it's, kind of a show, isn't it? It's 2020, <laughs> right? I, we can't talk about happy things. <laughs> Welcome to any one of the classes that I teach. So, I mean, yes, I, yes, a peace deal is, is desirable for all of the people who unfortunately have been caught in the crossfire. But, you know, in terms of American foreign policy in Afghanistan, you know, aside from just having you know, war fatigue and all of that, I mean, I think the American people need to have a conversation about a civil discussion about whether or not Afghanistan really needs to be at the top of our list in terms of foreign policy challenges that, that we need to address. When you were talking, Tim, I was thinking about Vietnam, as so many people do when, when we talk about you know Afghanistan. And I mean, maybe we'll find that we leave Afghanistan and the Taliban is a political party or, you know, they, they managed to recapture 
portions of the country, or perhaps they take over the entire government, you know, worst case scenario. And, and then the sky doesn't fall even after that. And maybe it's time for the U.S. to, to think about a number of possibilities where the Taliban is in power to some degree and we're okay with that because Al-Qaeda is not reestablishing roots in Afghanistan in any meaningful way. And that's our main concern there. And so, you know, in my class, I teach a class on women in war and we do a case study on Afghanistan and the women's movement in Afghanistan and how they have really struggled to be part of the political discussion in the country. And the U.S. has, you know, opened up doors for them over the last 20 years and what happens after the U.S. leaves, what will become of women in Afghanistan, which is truly a terrible thing to think about what will become of women under a, a Taliban-controlled government. But at the end of the day, I think it's time for the U.S. to really think about all of the, the resources that have been used. I won't say wasted. Oops, <laughs> I just said it. And so, you know, this is morally, ethically, it's a painful thing to talk about to right. abandon people who clearly need help from the U.S. At the same time, this is international politics. And right. Well, and certainly we can't focus on every little thing that goes on around the world. But I think if it's not done correctly, this plays into a wider theme of a lot of people just want the U.S. to disengage from the world. And it's on both sides, Republicans, yeah. Democrats, left, right, however you want to look at it, you know, they, they want to disengage for different reasons. But what happens when the U.S. disengages? People who are saying, oh, the, we can't be the, the world's policemen anymore. Okay, sure. But because the U.S. steps back, that leaves a vacuum. And who takes that role? China, Russia, countries that aren't necessarily have our best interest in mind. And same on economics, you know, stepping back from the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, left a gaping hole in our attempts to create better linkages in Asia. And Absolutely. so what, what happens now? So that is one overriding concern for myself when we talk about international relations is if the U.S. is not leading on this, who is? And obviously the history of Afghanistan, you look back to the 1980s and Russia trying to manage that conflict and Afghanistan is, quote, the place where empires go to die, but at the same time, keeping some presence there. And I think one thing that really should be discussed is our over-reliance on the military to do what the State Department, USAID, and other parts of the government really should be doing. So we don't have to necessarily Absolutely. have boots on the ground to be engaged. Absolutely. And that's what I was going to say, because, you know, I don't think the U.S. Should, should disengage. I think that we need to find other ways to advance our interest and support the groups that we want to support in these countries, Afghanistan and elsewhere, without sending thousands of boots on the ground. So, yeah, I think that the U.S. will be engaged in Afghanistan for a very long time, but that doesn't necessarily need to be military engagement. Right. 
All right. So I think the next question logically is what the heck is going on in the Mediterranean? Logically. <laughs> logically. We're skipping around from place <laughs> to place. We'll uh, figure it out. You know, straight from the headlines. It, <laughs> so what, what, a, what a mess. <laughs> Eastern Mediterranean, such a lovely place to holiday, by the way. I mean, okay. <laughs> gorgeous, you know, but yes, there are natural resources. <laughs> Always a recipe for success. Exactly, that everybody wants. And so if you've been following the story on what's happening in the Eastern Mediterranean, you know that there's gas exploration being carried out by various countries and various companies. And there are disagreements over maritime boundaries and who has access to what. And so you have this interesting rift between NATO allies. Shocking. We haven't seen that lately in any other <laughs> part of the world. No, right? I mean, so, and, and who's at the center of the rift? Oh, Turkey. Yeah. So <laughs> as, as people who have been following the story know, Turkey and Greece have a historically complicated relationship, shall we say. And long story short, there are natural resources, there's natural gas uh, under the Mediterranean and Greece and Cyprus and Egypt and Israel and Jordan and the Palestinian Authority created a group known as the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum and they are cooperating and Turkey was left out of the mix. France which considers itself a Mediterranean power, has asked to join the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum. And so that would really further isolate Turkey. Turkey is upset because it technically doesn't have access to explore some of those areas that are claimed by Greece and Cyprus and Israel and and other countries in the Eastern Mediterranean. And so Turkey then reached out to Libya, to sign a deal that establishes a maritime economic exclusion zone. And Turkey is also involved in Libya's civil war, backing the UN-backed government of national accord. And so this is just an added element because it just so happens that Egypt is also involved in Libya's civil war and is backing the other side. So now you see this interesting dynamic where you have Turkey versus Greece, Cyprus, France, Egypt, Israel, Jordan, and friends. And it's all about gas exploration and maritime boundaries. And then the Germans got involved. As they do. As they do, (laughs) because... Why not? Uh, of course, clearly the European Union has a role to play here. And clearly NATO has a role to play here because you have NATO allies, France and Turkey, you know, at loggerheads and, and, and Greece. And so the Germans came in and tried to act as interlocutors and, and get Greece and Turkey to have talks and talk it through. There's been escalation in, in the Eastern Mediterranean and there's this fear that it can further escalate and accidentally turn into some kind of an armed confrontation. Though I will say that I find that highly unlikely. And so that's basically the basics of, of the mess that is... <laughs> ongoing that's unfolding 
So, so you're saying super easy to figure out. Oh, it's very easy. I mean, yeah. you know, it's. Turkey, calm down. Everyone else, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I have to say in defense, uh, I'm, go I'm going to do something very unusual and defend <laughs> Erdogan. <laughs> in fairness to Turkey, when you look at the maps, <laughs> When you look at the maps and the areas that that Greece and Cyprus claim relative to Turkey, you know, Turkey definitely drew the short end of the stick there. And so I do think Turkey has some legitimate grievances. But I think that in the West, because Erdogan is like Putin, you know, this dark figure, anything that he promotes, any kind of, you know, uh, interest that he promotes on behalf of Turkey are by default problematic, right? Because we allow our feelings about Erdogan, who is indeed a tyrant, to sort of, you know, impact our view of, of Turkey's national interests. And I do think that in this regard, Erdogan has a lot of popular support for what he's doing, because I think Turkish people see this as a significant national interest. Access to energy is a concern, a major concern to all of these countries, obviously. And so I think they approve of Erdogan's assertiveness in this regard. Even people who ordinarily don't appreciate Erdogan's tactics in Turkey, I think they see this as a clear national interest. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting how I mean, it's the story of the world, right? You, you have resources, people want to get their hands on it, and right. we're all going to draw maps that say we have the most access to this. And, and then to throw in this whole Libya deal, which, you know, you, you have an internal civil war, which, again, history of the world, right? great powers get involved for their own benefit, whether it's, Absolutely. you know, because they want to get resources, because they want to maintain their, their friends in power, as you're seeing in Syria with Russia and all of that kind of stuff. So it, I, I am always amazed at the intricacies of what you think should just be an internal civil war. I don't want to say just, because that really minimizes the, the terrible effects of what's going on in Libya. But, right. you know, you, you wonder, could this have been resolved without so many outside forces trying to impose their own will on things. And how do we balance the idea of, oh, the US should be out there promoting freedom and democracy, but Russia can't be out there promoting more of an authoritarian take on things, or China can't be out there promoting more of a, a state-run centrist type of thing. So. There is always this thing in the back of my head saying, well, you know, is it fair of us to sort of be casting stones when, when we're not exactly perfect, but we have the moral high ground. That's, that's <laughs> what the difference is. <laughs> All right, so, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, we've talked these issues through pretty well, but since you claim that my podcast is all doom and gloom, I'm going to challenge you to give me a quick, positive international story. No, see, you needed to <laughs> warn me about this. You can't just with, bring this on someone whose life is filled with terrible stories. Right. <laughs> um, I, I only follow the, the bad stuff. The bad stuff. If it um, leads, it leads. Absolutely. <laughs> I, it's doom and gloom. Right. I don't. 
a good news story. Well, I get Navalny being okay uh, coming out. Yeah, you know, that is a good news story. Yeah. I don't know. Can you think of anything that? I mean, I, I know there are stories out there. That there are. I just don't pay uh, attention cor- to those. <laughs> so, so my favorite coronavirus positive spin on things because we we have to at this point is yes. you know. The effects on pollution that the lockdowns had a few months ago was the first time India had been able to see the Himalayas. And you think of the Himalayas as this huge, massive land thing that can be seen from outer space, but a country that actually has part of the mountains in their landmass can't actually see them because the smog is so bad in their cities. So that's wow. that's a positive. Absolutely. Hooray and for clean air. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, on that note, thank you, Melinda Negron Gonzalez, for, for joining you. me for this wide-ranging discussion on all of the top issues. I'm going to get a bunch of nasty emails saying, you couldn't think of one good news story. What is the matter with you? Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to challenge your students maybe to, to <laughs> do the research for you in advance of, of next month. Exactly. Months. They have to come up with, for extra credit, they've got to come up with the good news stories for you. So then you don't have to follow them yourself. I like this idea very much. Good. Yeah. Yes, all thank right. you. All right, well, thank you for joining me and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion, and please feel free to send us your ideas for topics to talk about in the future. Also, check out the Council's website, www org for our upcoming events and to sign up for our mailing list. Once again, this is the Global in the Granite State podcast. I am Tim Horgan. Our intro music is Admin by A.A. Alto. Our interlude music is Popism by Blue Dot Sessions. Until next time.